You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts. PewTrusts.org backslash After the Fact. If you're enjoying this show, you care about managing disagreements. So you should also check out I Love You But I Hate Your Politics, a new show from Macmillan Podcasts. Therapist Jeannie Safer helps people who care about each other but just can't see eye to eye on political issues. Hear from guests like CNN political commentators Margaret Hoover and John Avalon about how their marriage thrives despite political disagreements. Listen to the trailer now and subscribe for the first episode on August 16th. Just search for I Love You But I Hate Your Politics wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Arthur Brooks Show. I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and this is a show I'm making with the Vox Media Podcast Network. In this series, we look at the art of disagreement. And before we go on to talk about today's episode, I wanted to say thank you for listening and for rating the show and for reviewing the podcast. And especially thanks to listeners who've emailed to share their experiences and stories with us. Please keep it coming. In this episode, we're going to go to a place where ordinary disagreement tends to metastasize into something that's a lot worse than what we see in ordinary life. I'm talking, of course, about the internet, about social media, about the comment section after news articles. On the internet, where people are anonymous, we tend to see that disagreement becomes so much worse, so much faster than it ever would in ordinary life. Why is that? What's going on on the internet when it comes to disagreement and how can we do it better? We're gonna to talk today about anonymity, vitriol, polarization, silos. We're gonna to talk to begin with about moral outrage. Outrage is a really strong emotion that we feel when we see something uh, or, or hear about something that we think has violated some moral rule, and that, that could really depend on, on what you think is morally right or wrong. Molly Crockett is a psychologist. She has a PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Cambridge, and these days she works at Oxford's Center for Neuroethics, where she's a distinguished research fellow. 
it seems to be a, a pretty universally expressed emotion, and it can motivate people to shame and punish those who are perceived to have broken the rules. Molly Crockett runs the Crockett Lab, where she studies moral outrage. So in my lab at Yale, we look at these questions using a lot of different methods, ranging from brain imaging, behavioral experiments, and more recently we've been getting into looking at uh, big data, social media behaviors, uh, because we, we think that it's a fascinating, important question to understand how new technologies might be changing the nature of the way we interact with one another. Before we go into what moral outrage looks like on social media, I want to dig into what it is. What goes into the making of moral outrage? Is it different from anger or irritation? Or is it some other level of emotion entirely? There's research on moral outrage suggesting that it's a unique mixture of both anger and disgust in a particular moral context. Um, and I think that just with any emotion, moral outrage can be mild or severe. And depending on the level, that will uh, determine whether you just sort of go about your day slightly annoyed or join a movement or take a really costly action, maybe even to the to the point of risking your own life. Hmm. Tell me, give me an example or, or two of moral outrage in modern society. Probably most of us are experiencing it uh, all the time when we take out our smartphones and open our social media feeds, or at least that's what I feel like. And I think one of the, the ideas that, that we've been developing in my lab is, is the idea that maybe there's something about the design of social media platforms that might be amplifying the outrage that we feel in response to reading the news. So moral outrage over the conduct of a politician you don't like, for example. This is different than simply feeling angry because you disagree with the policy you're saying. It adds in a, a couple of pinches of disgust and suddenly you get a more combustible emotion, right? Yes, interesting because it seems to me that we can go from a society in which we disagree with each other, even disagree with each other vocally, if not violently. But when we add in this disgust factor, which is the, sort of the moral component, if, if we believe the work of Jonathan Haidt, that disgust component is actually what gives us probably the biggest problem in not understanding each other in politics today. Is that fair? I think that's a pretty fair prediction. I mean, there, there's a lot of work suggesting that um, the, the disgust reaction in particular could be linked in some way to dehumanizing the other person. And of course, dehumanizing the other person makes it more likely that you would shame them or aggress against them. Let's talk about where we find moral outrage pretty significantly in modern life today, and that's in, that's in social media. This is something you've looked at mm. a lot. Tell me about moral outrage and how it's commonly expressed in social media today. So um, one of the first data points that I looked at to investigate the expression of moral outrage and the response to it on social media um, came from a data set that was collected by my really smart colleagues, Will Hoffman and Linda Skitka uh, at University of Illinois in Chicago. And they did this really large-scale study where they sampled people's moral experiences in their everyday lives by signaling them a few times a day on their smartphones and having people fill out brief surveys about their recent experiences in the last hour, whether they'd recently learned about, witnessed, committed, or been the target of any moral or immoral acts. And they collected a bunch of um, measures in, in response to this, like if they, if they had learned about an immoral or immoral act, they ask them like, oh, well, where did you learn about this? And how are you feeling in response to this? 
And one of the things um, that I could see in this data was that when people learn about an immoral act online through social media, um, they feel more outraged by it than when they learn about an immoral act through uh, word of mouth or through traditional forms of media like uh, TV, news, or radio. And so what this suggested to me is that it could be that the kinds of things that people are being exposed to on social media might be designed to provoke more outrage. And that makes sense when you think about the business model of social media platforms are really designed uh, to grab our attention maximally. And so uh, the algorithms that push content to the top of our news feeds um, really prioritize that content that's going to draw the most engagement. And there's some other data um, one study led by a, a really, really smart uh, set of researchers, colleagues at NYU, um, who found that uh, moral emotions are one of the biggest predictors of uh, how viral content goes on, on Twitter. So they found that um, every moral emotional word in a tweet increases the likelihood of retweet by 20%. So moral emotions like outrage are most likely to go viral on social media, which means that just sort of by design, even if they're not intended to be set up that way, algorithms that prioritize engagement are going to push to the top of our feeds that content, which is going to trigger those strong moral emotions like outrage. So if you feel like you're constantly uh, barraged by by content that that has this flavor to it, like you're probably not alone. Like the the algorithms are designed to do this. Molly, let's get more specific, and I want to hear some examples. You study moral outrage, and you look at it in the context of social media. Give me some examples of something that our listeners are going to see probably coming across their social media feeds today that that demonstrate the principles that you're talking about. Sure. So I think one of the most potent recent examples of moral outrage on social media that, that I think illustrates both sort of the, the power and the perils of online outrage uh, is the response to the Parkland um, High School shooting a couple of months ago. Here's what we know at this hour. At least 17 people have been killed, students and adults. And there was immediately a, an outrage response on social media. It was led by the students. This went viral. It was consuming all of our news feeds for several days. The thing about it is that we are the generation that's had to be trapped in closets waiting for police to come or waiting for a shooter to walk into our door. We are the people that know what it's like firsthand. Many major retailers responded to this outrage, dropping their partnerships with the NRA. So this had real social impact in a way that I think we had not seen before. We're the mass shooting generation. That's, I, I was born- We're the mass shooting generation. I was born months after Columbine. I'm 17 years old and we've had 17 years of mass shootings. At the same time, there were examples of what I might call uh, sort of misfiring outrage. People were outraged about aspects of the events that were maybe not the, the most effective targets of their outrage. And they behaved in ways that in some, in some ways might be counterproductive. So one example um, was after the shooting, um, President Trump met with the students and uh, somebody snapped a photo of him holding a note card that had some notes about how to display empathy for the students. And 
that got its own sort of uh, firestorm on social media where liberals were uh, sort of tweeting outrage responses about how it's so terrible that he has to have a note card to remind him to display empathy. And this, to me, observing it just seemed like an example of, of noise overwhelming signal. And so those, those features, to me, suggest that, that moral outrage online might not be operating in an optimal way. And we should think about how the design of social media platforms might be making it less optimal. Well, let's talk about the design of social media platforms and the, the role of the platforms themselves and, and and maybe what the social media companies themselves can do to lower the temperature, to lower the outrage. What, what would you suggest? Well, I mean, this is, this is the, the billion-dollar question, billions of dollars worth of question. Um, from my perspective, I think one of the most concerning design features is, is the fact that expressing outrage we know gets us a lot of social attention. People like it, people share it, and platforms are, uh, are, are designed to deliver this positive social feedback to us um, at unpredictable times. And we know from research in psychology that delivering rewards unpredictably is a way to create habits, and habits are behaviors that are expressed without regard to their consequences. And so if you want to make any behavior, but in particular expressions of, of outrage, more intentional and less knee-jerky, then one way to, to target that might, might be to change the way that we get this feedback online. But of course, that's going to make the apps themselves, you know, f full stop, less um, habit-forming, which is, is, you know, sort of contrast to the the business model, which is to keep people using them as long as possible. So I mean, there are hard questions around around these issues. Um, but I mean, I think tech, com tech companies are thinking about this actively. So uh, it does seem like at least some tech com companies are, are waking up to these issues and, and realizing that people care about this. Molly Crockett says that showing moral outrage can be a way to virtue signal. That's the way that people signal to each other that they care about certain things, that they have certain virtues, they have values in common with others. So, for example, if you're part of a community that, in general, doesn't like President Trump, an efficient way for you to show that you're a member of this community in good standing is to act really outraged on social media about President Trump. That's virtue signaling. The moral part of moral outrage is also very powerful in terms of uh, bolstering your reputation. Um, one of my colleagues, Jill Jordan, who just got her PhD from Yale, has some really fantastic work showing that um, you know moral behaviors really do signal to other people our moral character, and outrage is one way to signal how trustworthy and, and good you are to other people. But being altruistic, being generous, appealing to those better angels of our nature is a more effective way to signal your character to others. And if you have both signals at the same time, both the good and the outrage, people pay more attention to the good. So and yet, I think to answer your question, even though Outrage is very profitable. It's a really good way to get attention. Appealing to other kinds of moral goals that people have. And I think at this point in our country, we are <laughs> invested in getting along and, and fixing this dumpster fire. That could be very powerful too. So I, I'm optimistic, I think, 
about this endeavor. Uh, so it, it's possibly the case that some of what we hear on Twitter or Facebook, where this is the the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life, um, or, or or for that matter, the bumper sticker that says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, that just might, might mm-hmm. as well convert that into, I'm a really, really good person because I think something. Well, so yes, but, and the but is, it's not clear the extent to which people are conscious of this reputation-boosting effect of outrage. And certainly some expressions of outrage are genuine, um, and some may be less genuine. They may be just sort of triggered by a knee-jerk reaction to a a stimulus that people have repeatedly um, interacted with in the past. Um, The intentional outrage and the unintentional outrage get mixed, of course, in our news feeds. And one thing that really concerns me is that if you dial up the volume on moral outrage, which is something that I think social media does, then you risk losing real signal amongst a lot of noise. And if everything is worthy of outrage, then effectively nothing is. And outrage used in an intentional way can be very powerful, and a lot of the social progress that we have made in our society over the centuries has been in result to it has been in response to outrage about injustices like slavery or like gender inequality. And you know, not all outrage is bad, but uninhibited, indeterminate outrage can be very harmful to society. I think. Hmm. A little outrage goes a long way, I guess, right? That's one way of of thinking about it, yeah. Molly Crockett is teaching us that we tend to dehumanize ourselves through the use of technology, that moral outrage is inflamed on social media. We seem less than human to each other. So the challenge is how do we rehumanize ourselves in this environment? What can we do to be better more human. Juliana Schroeder is a management professor at the University of California at Berkeley at the Haas School of Business, and she does work on rehumanization by use of the human voice. My research is around how we form social inferences about people. So how do we think about people, and particularly how do we think about their minds, their mental capacities, their capacity to think and to feel? Um, And the reason I'm so interested in that is because when we fail to attribute um, those critical capacities to others, it's sort of a form of dehumanization. And so that is a, a critical precursor to conflict. A beautiful example happens in politics. <laughs> mm. It used to be when we wanted to study dehumanization, we looked to outgroup members, so re- relationships with people that are different from you. So how people think about people from different races or different genders. But actually, like the starkest differences that we find these days in research is uh, people who hold a different ideology than you do. For example, if we talk to someone who self-reports as being liberal about what they think about conservatives. They'll say these sort of things typically like, oh, you know, they're idiots. They, they just don't know what they're thinking. They, they don't know what they're doing. What Juliana Schroeder is talking about is what social scientists sometimes call othering, seeing people around you who don't agree with you as, as the other, as being foreign in a very fundamental way. It, it tends to be extremely dehumanizing. 
So when you think of a person as not having these mental capacities to think and feel um, or having less than you yourself do, then that can reduce your interest in um, having moral regard for them. So they don't they no longer seem worthy of uh, sort of basic moral rules that apply to humans. And so that can make it more likely for people to feel like they can abuse those people in some ways, um, that they don't need to treat them with respect. So how do we go about rehumanizing each other? Because that's really what we want to do. Let's start with the power of the human voice. You know, that's why we're making a podcast, isn't it? Is to use the human voice to talk about big ideas and to bring people together. Last year, Juliana Schroeder wrote an article with a couple of co-authors in the journal Psychological Science. The title of the article is kind of a mouthful. The Humanizing Voice, Speech Reveals and Text Conceals, A More Thoughtful Mind in the Midst of Disagreement. It was about the power of human voices. So the big idea in that research is how do we know that others are thinking? So when, you, when one person communicates their ideas to you, how do you know that they're being you know, thoughtful, reasonable, rational? The interesting aspect of this is that these different modalities by which I can communicate thoughts to you. And so one modality is through writing. So I could use text to convey my thoughts to you. But another would be through speaking. So I can, even, even if the exact words are the same, I can speak to you and that might, you might come up with a different impression of me based on that. And then you could also think about the body language. So visual, visual cues. And so the interesting question is, well, do all those different forms of language, those different modalities, differently convey the person's mind to the observer. Turns out they do. <laughs> so that's what that research is all about. And, you know, what's really interesting is that it, it, it seems that the, the voice is sort of the critical component there. So um, if you hear someone speak their opinions compared to reading the same opinions, you tend to think the person seems more reasonable, more rational, more thoughtful. So you attribute all these sort of uniquely human capacities to them. Um, and that can actually moderate the effect of, of dehumanization that occurs during disagreement. Interesting. So you're, you're one of the things that you say in this paper is that is actually in the title, speech reveals and text conceals. Is it just that we have a sort of less of an expressive repertoire when you've got the words on the page and you can't inflect it with your voice? Yeah. So I think the voice is this amazing tool that all humans have that they use to express themselves. And the, you know, there's a lot of research that suggests that why do voices exist? Well, it's for the purpose of social communication, right? Like, why did humans develop speech and why the voice in particular? You know, it's like it's well evolved to specifically communicate all these like deep nuances in our thoughts and our feelings. And listening to my voice right now, it always makes me very self-conscious to talk about this. <laughs> you can hear when I pause or when my, you know, voice speeds up a little, the rate of my speech, the, the way my tone of voice is changing, all of those things are giving you insight into what it is that I'm thinking beyond just the words that I'm actually saying. Hmm. Uh, and all of that you lose with text. <laughs> Even when you are in a high conflict situation, talking to someone that you disagree with, being able to talk with them in speech, in person, with your voice, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, just audio or being able to see as well. That doesn't seem to make a difference. That allows the conflict to resolve itself. So you end up having more agreement at the end of like a 10-minute conversation 
when you're talking than you would when you're typing. So sometimes people do report that they've had a more emotional experience, that the conversation got more heated, but they still report greater agreement by the end of the conversation when they talked than when they wrote. <laughs> mm. I think it's really fascinating to think that we have now we have all these amazing communication technologies, but a lot, I think it's pushing us in the direction of moving more towards text right now, at least. Uh, we're in a world right now where a good deal of politics is t- is taking place in in the virtual world. A lot of it is through text, uh, social media. It's mostly people writing words and other people reading their words. Tell me how you think this is affecting our political discourse. I think it's based on these data. It's a little bit concerning. Not only is it sort of deindividuating, like you don't know who is the person behind these statements that you're reading. It also, you know, the just the consuming a person's opinions via text uh, leaves out all of those like critical cues for understanding what it is that they meant, right? So there's a lot of space for miscommunication, and there's a lot of space to dehumanize those that you disagree with. We're going to take a quick break now to hear from our sponsor. We'll be back in a moment. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back to talking about disagreement online and on social media. Molly Crockett taught us that social media is actually designed to turn disagreement into outrage. Juliana Schroeder taught us that leaving textual disagreement behind is a good thing because textual disagreement, that which is in writing, like on social media, dehumanizes us. So what do we know? We know that social media is actually not a very good place for meaningful debate. Social media is built to sort of scratch the itch of our tribalism, um, and human-to-human interaction does the exact opposite. This is Liz Joyner. She's the founder of The Village Square. That's an organization that encourages people to disagree with each other, but to do it face-to-face. There is really a profound difference between disagreeing with someone and demonizing them and holding them in contempt. And I think that the the demonization and the contempt is something that falls away very naturally when people are in some sort of relationship with each other. And I don't even mean sustained relationship. I mean just in proximity to each other. How do they do it? This agreement without demonization and without contempt and without outrage and without vitriol and without social media. At the Village Square, they believe that the best way to disagree is face-to-face and over dinner. Everything we ever do is over food. The Village Square gets people together over dinner to have conversations over tough topics. They run their programs as a series of dinners in three cities, Salt Lake City, Fort Lauderdale, and Tallahassee. So we gather in Tallahassee where we started, we gather about 
30 times a year, we have all sorts of different conversations about the most uh, controversial topics, and we do it in rooms full of lots of people. So we, we really kind of dive right in and roll our sleeves up and do democracy. People have a very strong feeling that all humans everywhere must abide by moral norms. So, for example, most people think it's wrong to punch babies. I, I hope you would agree. It seems like it's a bad Same thing. Way Don't I could punch not babies. listen to someone call me or my friends pedophiles because we were gay. I would find it very, very difficult to enjoy a real, profound, understanding friendship with anyone who could not see beyond this. Should we always rhetoric? fall down on the side of promoting freedom? Should we always fall down on the side of equality? Or is there uh, some Solomonic sort of solution Whether to these like sorts of things? like it or not, things? the philosophy of the Founding Fathers are deeply influenced by John Locke. And John Locke believed that these values of, of liberty and freedom and equality derived their authority from God. He was trying to form a philosophical and a religious basis for constitutional government. What you're hearing are clips from real conversations between people at the Village Square events. The Village Square works on a membership model where individuals and organizations support the work, and their work is creating what Liz Joyner calls civic glue. By that, she means the values that bond people together. Liz Joyner came into our studio to tell me more about the Village Square and how it works. Our model is a little bit more that we consider ourselves kind of a lab school for how you do this. And so increasingly, we're offering modules and ideas and sort of in-the-box programming to almost anyone who's interested in doing this kind of work. I, I tease that our motto is, we've made the mistake, so you don't have to. Huh. So, so walk me through what one of your sessions looks like today. Um, well, we have just an amazing number of different things that we do. We started out actually doing a, a series called Dinner at the Square, and we thought that if we if we said, hey, we really want to talk across the aisle, everybody come, that that would necessarily work. But one of the things that we've found is that we have to, in this environment, we have to do a lot more reaching out to different groups of people in order to engage them. So we have this dinner series. That's actually the only thing that we charge money for. We, we bring in amazing um, amazing people who disagree, and we have these deep, rich conversations. Uh, we also, it, it's also really a forum for hometown conversations. So a lot, a lot of those conversations involve people who disagree locally. Um, we, the second year we were in operation, we decided that we weren't seeing enough conservatives. So we started a program called God Squad, and that's a, a group of five um, highly disagreeing uh, pastors from around the community who've now had a conversation for eight years about civic issues. Uh, we have done programs around race when after the, we're in Florida and the, uh, after the Trayvon Martin tragedy happened, we started talking about, okay, how can we build a civic muscle so when tragedy occurs, we can have real conversations. Uh, so we have a project called Local Color that's funded by Knight Foundation where we're really drawing, we're essentially gathering in the midst of race-related crisis rather than separating. So you bring people in to a room, to an auditorium in front of an audience? Mm -hmm. What? Where do you bring people? Um, at different places, different vibes. We have one event that we do every year called Created Equal, and we've got 
600 people registered for the event. Um, when it's that big, we normally have, um, you know, we, we, we build civic glue almost from the ground up. So we might, if, if you were interested in being involved in one of our events, we would ask you to stretch in your network and build a table of people to come to a big event like that. Um, and and that way you you're everybody's stretching a little bit, and it means that you have an audience of people who are different and wouldn't normally find each other. So the conversation per se is what we're trying to get at, right? It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the convening per se, which is creating the the benefit. Or? Yeah, well, it is. And actually, what's so interesting is I, I kind of have good news and bad news about this work. The good news is if you can get. Uh, people who are highly diverse, ideologically, demographically, into a room, uh, things change foundationally and quickly. We're trying. We're trying to make the people in the audience who are liberal say, you know what? I that conservative. They said some things that really made sense to me, and vice versa. So we're trying to support that kind of stretching outside uh, of of our echo chambers. And and it really it's it is surprisingly easy. We've been able to show uh, before and after really shifts in how much demonization we do towards each other. The bad news is really people don't really want to do this work. So that is a, actually the hard part of it. What the do you hard mean they part, don't do the work? They don't want to participate in the conversation. The hard part of it is getting them in the room. And I, I think that that's something that that broadly people in in my field have found is that you know in some ways we've already got kind of the electronic M&M that we all want, right? All we have to do is sit at our computer or um, look at the television set and click a button, and we get all the people who agree with us, and it's an amen chorus, and it feels good, and it's on your couch. The problem is that that it 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 that's easy, and we've already got that. And so, so our um, experience has been that you really have to work hard to draw the people in. Do you find that you're getting a specific kind of person that, that is more comfortable with disagreeing somebody who, I mean, I, I suspect that you have a self-selection uh, issue, uh, right? I mean, there are people like you and me. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I also, I do think that, that um, generally uh, people who are a little bit more interested run a little bit more liberal and a little bit more 40s to 50-ish. They sort of, uh-huh. they, they've had a little bit more experience with what um, what civic glue looks like in this kind of form. Um, but we pretty much refuse to let that be the end of it. How do you structure the conversation? So you get five conservatives and five liberals around the table and you get to talk about race relations in America. It's not a rumble, not a free-for-all. Presumably that you have a moderator who actually starts throwing out topics and listening to people weigh in. It's about building relationships between people. So, in fact, our when, when we gather a conversation, there's a lot of kind of relationship choreography that goes on behind the scenes. An example of that is right in the middle of our of the very divisive debate on immigration. We were scheduled to have a big program on immigration, and a local liberal le- rabbi was going to lead the conversation. So so uh, as the facilitator, and so we started thinking, okay, who do we reach out to who might, who, who that just might, that might complete that conversation or continue to be the second person in the conversation? And we ended up inviting Marco Rubio's general counsel at the time, Len Collins, and he d- d- has a fantasy baseball league that he does with the rabbi. So there is a relationship, right? They disagree completely on immigration. Uh, Marco Rubio was right in the middle of the conversation at the time, and we knew that that 
that that substantially was going to be a really real and good conversation between people who knew each other. And then we added to the, hmm. the panelists from there. So, uh, you know, I'd say one of the differences in what we, how we do what we do is that a lot of debates happen um, – um, it, 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 you know, it's it's kind of about winning and losing, and um, it's about putting people on who almost sort of don't want to agree. And I would say that we really make it about the our our panels kind of on the same team. We see we see difference of opinion as being looking at different parts of a big elephant, mm. and and that and that it, we're on the team together to be able to sort of cipher all that out. It's interesting. I I, I wind up in a lot of conversations in my own career talking. I'm a conservative who looks like a liberal. So I I wind up being the conservative guy in a lot of really liberal environments. And they want to have these cross ideological discussions. And and sometimes they go well and sometimes they don't. They never get bitter. I I never have a hard time. You know, nobody ever attacks. It's always really, really friendly. The problem is it's sometimes too friendly. So a college had me and a a guy uh, recently, and we were supposed to have this big debate. And we couldn't find that much that we disagree on. Is that a problem? Yeah. It, it, sometimes we sort of struggle with that, and we ask people to really um, to hold their opinions um, well and comfortably. And because I do think that that's sort of what happens naturally between people. That's why this is a formula that works, right? Because I sort of want to, yeah, I sort of yeah. want to lean towards you and understand what it is you're saying, just as a human to human thing. It's the right wheelhouse to make that work. Uh, interestingly, we're starting a, a, a project on college campuses that we're calling Respect and Rebellion, and we're getting pairs of speakers onto campuses who have relationships ahead of time, but disagree completely. And that is actually exactly one of the challenges we're having is we're needing to find friends who haven't kind of joined each other somewhere in the middle, which is the natural thing that happens. It's interesting. One of the things that we find here at AEI is that that real strength doesn't come from agreement. It comes from a common moral consensus with differing approaches to meet that moral consensus, which is what we call the competition of ideas. But people have forgotten that. People have a tendency to think if you're going to get more harmony, it means you must agree, which is exactly wrong if you want to be more excellent. Yeah, that is just so, so correct. Uh, You know, really, the, the thing that we agree on as Americans is really disagreeing, right? Because that's the basis of American democracy. We're supposed to be straining against each other. There's there's a clashing there that's incredibly fundamentally constructive. And it's so it's not just the basis of American democracy. It's the basis of capitalism. It's the basis of the academy. And and frankly, we're we're talking about ideas that go back to the Enlightenment. And and it's like we've uh, there's something about what's been happening with us culturally that we've been forgetting. What that is. So tell me what's going on culturally and, and why has that happened? Why, why are we so, either we're so terrible at disagreeing that everything becomes a, a nuclear war. Right. It's a Hobbesian all on all struggle. Or we feel that we must agree or, or we have to be weak in, in our positions. It feels like we're, we're just, we've become terrible, mediocre at disagreement in this it, country, it right? It is. And in fact, we're, we're not even that? good at arguing our own position anymore because it's never challenged by anything, right? Right. We're just with the people who agree with us. And so it becomes, you know, sort of when I go back in an environment that's more partisan, it just feels mushy and mealy. And it, it just, it feels like it doesn't, it, it's not an idea that has strength. And in some ways, I kind of think that we have 
it's no wonder that with the evolution of social media and the way that media has changed that we're finding ourselves in a position that is kind of a surprise. Uh, and, and what we've done is we've made it just so easy to hang out with the people who see it our way. And then it's human nature to do it, right? We, we talked a little bit about the culprits behind bad disagreement. And bad disagreement has two parts to it. One is the inability to disagree in a quality way. The other is to use vitriol, is to demonize the other person. So these are the two sort of uh, mortal sins of disagreement, as I'm take, taking away from your work. And one of the culprits to that was, was uh, ghettoization. I mean, you said that we're ghettoizing ourselves in social media. We're doing it, it probably even physically. It's just easier and easier to surround yourself with people with whom we disagree. Mm-hmm. But let's be, let's find some culprits and be conspiracy theorists here even okay. a little bit more. Tell me about people who are profiting from vitriol, profiting from this ghettoization, actually building up their fame and their power and their money base by asking Americans, encouraging Americans to hate their neighbors. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that um, afoot. Uh, I call them professional polarizers. And, um, and obviously, we have a lot of that in the media. Uh, and the demand for that is high. Frankly, again, it's higher than the demand for what I do. And, and you have to be honest about that. We have the misfortune right now. And I mean, in some ways, it's always been a little bit like this. Um, but the, but we elect people based on that those that basic idea. They they they're the dividers. They're the, the you know I'm I'm needing to show you how I'm different than these other people. And then we've gotten really good at selling things. So you know there's data that says that it's it's those negative campaign ads that really sell that really mobilize us. The markets tend to be pretty efficient in this in this type of thing, and, and and if it turns out that you can get really really rich and 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 elected over and over and over again on the basis of of bitterness and and the basis of even destructive disagreement, maybe that's what the market will bear. Maybe that's what people actually want. On the other hand. I have done a lot of research in my time as an academic about markets and things like meth and pornography. Those are highly, those are terrible, they're evil products, and at the same time, they're highly profitable. So, which is the better analogy? So, I would certainly agree with you on the economics of division. I, I, agree, I clearly, the economic foundation is there. Uh, I tend to think that one of the errors that we're making is we're arguing against that without arguing for something else. And so— Arguing against polarization. Yeah, we're saying be nice, be civil, little finger wag, a little little super ego— um, you know, your mother told you to not talk about those topics where it's it's like sort of an absence of something. And I think that the way that you create a market um, that's stronger for this is that you sell the presence of something. and and the presence of 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 what I'm arguing for, and I and I think a lot of people are right now, is is it's a it's a hero arc of, of how civilizations, how democracy can work. And, you know, it really started at the beginning of the founding of our country. Um, that was the basic premise that we were going to be engaged with people, that the minority um, was going to be protected in order to, to challenge the majority and balance them. Um, the the it, 
I do really believe um, in American exceptionalism. I believe that we had an idea, and it's our turn now to sort of revive it in the world, ideally, and to show people that light, not just the what you shouldn't do, but to to give people a bigger vision of what you do do. You know, I think people now are starting to get a sense of how it's not working for us the other way. So, Liz, how many years have you been doing this, Village Square? 12 years. 12 years, since 2006. You've seen a lot of conversations. You've seen a lot of people talking to each other. And, and, and my guess is you've seen a lot of things go right and a lot of things go wrong. So tell me, what are the biggest disappointments that you've endured since you've been doing this work? So I think the biggest disappointment I've endured is uh, is really actually recent. I, I think in the last couple of years, I am sad to see what I think is a decrease in the desire to do this work rather than an increase. And so I guess in my in my own optimistic mind, I would hope that the demand would be accelerating. I think that it's really this is really overwhelming for a lot of people and and they're just ducking. And so so my disappointment is I think that we're not doing we're not putting our shoulder at the wheel quite the way we ought to and need to um, right now. Sometimes I hear people who are are pining for a better past. And it's kind of like, you know, back in the 50s when everybody went to church. It turns out that was a high point and an unusual point in American history. And, yeah. and what we're experiencing now with church attendance turns turns out to be more normal according to American trends, and according to the data as I read them as a social scientist. I worry the same thing might obtain with respect to how we talk to each other and how we entertain a competition of ideas, how we talk to each other with respect. I look back at the 19th century. It, it was kind of terrible the whole time. It was one <laughs> bad populist fire em up president after another. Mm-hmm. It was really low quality debate. It was, you know, in, in Congress, one guy almost beat another guy to death with his with a with his cane, his cane. <laughs> and and you know it, through the Kansas Nebraska Act they couldn't get there. It, it was so far apart. This of course ultimately you know through a few years and a few events led to the Civil War, and and we're not talking about that at all. So if I look in a historical perspective, I think yeah, man, I don't like the debates today. But it used to be worse, not better, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's right, and I do think that those of us of a, at a certain age have spent our lives in what is less normal. And, and so that is definitely what we're trying to sort of turn our, ourselves back around to. But really, you know, sort of if you look sort of not just in the United States, but really across the world, the, the more typical story is that we're, we are divided by our tribes, that that is the central allegiance that we, that we have to each other. And that's, where, that's what um, springs out of that. So that's kind of more of a normal human state. I think that we've had something really amazing and special um, going on here. It's it's a group of incredibly diverse people, uh, racially, ethnically, ideologically, that believe in an idea, an idea that is, I think, the biggest idea that's ever happened ever anywhere. All men are created equal. And I do think that we're still a country that believes that. And I think that uh, that's why we've been the light in the world that we have. And I think that that's what we have to rebelieve together, that, that what draws us together across our differences is pursuit of that. We've covered a lot of material in this episode, but it comes down to some pretty simple rules. Disagreeing poorly, generally speaking, happens on social media because people don't hear each other and people don't see each other. Anonymity lowers moral inhibition. 
To be quite frank, social media and anonymity bring out your worst you. So how can you bring out your best you? How can you disagree better? How can you lower the temperature? The answer is actually pretty simple. Don't write your disagreement and don't do it where you have no identity. Voice your disagreement, talk to other people, see each other face to face, do it over a meal. You'll find that disagreement isn't so bitter, that moral outrage isn't so extreme. You'll be happier, you'll understand each other better. Who knows, you might even be able to make some progress. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher, Nathan Thompson, and Spencer Moore. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Please rate and review the podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Next week, we're going to talk about contempt with the psychologist John Gottman. It's a fascinating conversation. You're going to want to hear it. And here's the thing. I need you to write to me and tell me a story about contempt in your life. And we might play it on the next episode. The email address is arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. You can get in touch on Twitter, too. I'm at Arthur Brooks. Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash after the fact, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.